Hi, this is Gary Meese with the case against. This is episode 73. We're continuing a look at the uh, West Memphis 3 case. And we're, yeah, we're getting close to the end here. Uh, we're, you know, I, I covered in a previous episode, I covered the circumstances behind their release on, uh, back in 2000, uh, the, the release of Damien Eccles, Jason Ball, and J Jesse Miskelly Jr. on, uh, in uh, 2011. Uh, well, j brief background is they were convicted, tried, and uh, they were charged with killing three little boys, three eight-year-olds, Stevie Branch, Michael Moore, and Christopher Byers. Uh, the killings allegedly occurred, or did occur, on May 5th, 1993, in a wooded area near where the boys lived in West Memphis, Arkansas. Uh, the boys were uh, tortured, beaten, uh, Two of them were mutilated. One of them was mutilated sexually. Chris Byers was mutilated sexually. Stevie Branch had horrible cuts to his face. Uh, they were bound, stripped, and drowned. Two of the boys died by drowning. Christopher Byers died from a combination of factors, apparently, but he had pretty well bled out by the time he was placed in the water, and so he did not die from drowning probably died from loss of blood, but you could throw in shock. Who knows? There's a lot going on there. Uh, and the, uh, med the medical examiner's reports weren't, it didn't say he died from loss of blood in particular, but it did say he didn't die from drowning, which is a bone of contention, as it is almost everything else in this case. Anyway, the, the they were re released uh, after serving... 18 years or so in, in prison. They were convicted in 94. They were released on an Alfred plea in 2011. Uh, and that essentially is a guilty plea, but it gives them a little out and that they can continue to proclaim their innocence, even though they've pleaded guilty. They acknowledge that the state has sufficient evidence to perhaps convict them again. So, you know, it's not a get-out-of-jail-free card. Uh, they're going to be labeled as convicted child killers for the rest of their life, in a legal sense anyway, uh, unless uh, there's some sort of action at, the, say, the state, uh, the state level if the gover governor issues a pardon or something like that, which is, I don't know, maybe it could happen someday. I hope not, but... Uh, it's certainly not likely anytime soon. And the longer this goes on, the less likely it, it would be, I think. Um, now, so they, they had this hearing in Arkansas and then they, they, got, out, they got out on August 19th, 2011. And Damian Eccles and Jason Baldwin immediately went to a party at a Memphis hotel. It was a Madison Hotel, actually, hosted by uh, Pearl Jam singer Eddie Vedder, who was a longtime supporter. Uh, Jesse Miskelly 
Junior went home to Highland Trailer Park, uh, which is adjacent to Marion, Arkansas. Damien, uh, not Damien, Jason and Damien lived in Lakeshore Estates Trailer Park. Uh, it's one side on one side of the I-55 interstate, and uh, Jesse lived on uh, in uh, Highland Highland Park Trailer Park. On the other side, on the east side of I-55 interstate, uh, the two there's several trailer parks in that area. They're fairly close together, low income. Uh, neither they're sort of sandwiched between. Marion, Arkansas, and West Memphis, Arkansas, and neither municipality wants to take take in the trailer parks. Presumably, not much income is going to be coming from there, and they're going to be they're going to be expensive to maintain, uh, keep up law enforcement, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So nobody wants to take on that responsibility. Uh, the kids living in those trail parks go to Marion schools. In fact, a portion of uh, West Memphis proper in, inside the city limits. Some of those kids go to schools in Marion because of the way uh, the school districts were drawn many, many years ago. And that may have changed. That may have changed in the last five years or so, but it, it, that was when I, I worked in West Memphis at the newspaper there for about four years, and um, that was the case then. Uh, Damien Eccles, of course, was supposedly really ill, just dying in prison, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, but he was able to go to this party and... Uh, Apparently, you know, seemed like he pretty much stayed up all night and socialized and seemed to do pretty well, despite all his kvetching and complaining. Um, Eddie Vedder, and I didn't know this at the time I wrote the book, but I've listened to some podcasts since then, interviews with Jason Baldwin, and Eddie Vedder uh, actually invited Jesse uh, uh, Jason to come to his home in the Pacific Northwest and uh, Jason was there working as a gardener, a house guest gardener for a while. Unclear how long that was. Uh, I think in, in the, and I'm drawing on my book, Where the Monsters Go. It's the second of two volumes. The first volume is Blood on Black. There is a combined, revised, condensed version called The Case Against the West Memphis Three Killers. All three books are available on Amazon, in Kindle, and in print format. And at the time I wrote the book, there were, you know, some things just I just wasn't aware of. So I didn't know that uh, Eddie Vedder had opened his home to Baldwin. And... Uh, think I'm going to get into this, but Damien, um, had access to apartments from, I believe in New York from, uh, that were owned by Peter Jackson, who's 
probably one of the certainly one of the wealthiest men in New Zealand, if not the wealthiest. He's a movie, and he's a movie director. Uh, Baldwin then began working at a construction company. He was helping out with clerical work at a law firm. He returned to school and he did earn, apparently earn an associate's degree. And uh, December 2013, Baldwin married his longtime girlfriend, Holly Boward, whom he had first gotten to know as a supporter while he was in prison. And apparently he was, again, I wrote this, I didn't know this at the time, because it's kind of how they describe things are not very exactly sometimes. And they talk, oh, this is my longtime girl. Well, Holly Boward is, is, is in film footage with Jason on his release, but apparently he was really interested in some other girl. Holly glommed on to him, and he ended up with Holly. Uh, not too long after that, Ballin sought backers for a memoir on the crowdfunding site Kickstarter. And uh, the proposal drew 727 backers. They pledged a total of $29,453 during a 30-day funding period that ended on Christmas Day in uh, 2013. Uh, in a May 2014 interview, Ballin claimed to be working on the book daily while the Kickstarter funding was paying his bills, he said. Uh, the estimated delivery date of the book was December 2014. He since then, he's issued occasional updates on the project, accessible to backers only. I'm not a backer, so I don't know what he says on the updates. I do know it's been over a year since he's offered any kind of update on his Kickstarter site, because I just looked at it. Uh, the last, last update was in September 2019. Uh, in February 2016, he had announced no plans for completing the book or publishing the book, but claimed in a rare public posting that he was still working on his memoirs. And Marl Everett, uh, the crony of uh, Eccles and Baldwin and uh, the author of the book, uh, the discredited book, uh, Devil's Knot, uh, had endorsed the project and encouraged donations. Now, Leverett had written a second book in her so-called Devil's Knot trilogy called Dark Spell that was published in 2014. And, you know, this basically told Baldwin's story. He talked about his childhood and followed his prison career. And this was not... The Baldwin memoirs. This was not this. I mean, it's about Jason, but it's not about his. It's not his personal story as told by Jason Baldwin. It's not his memoirs. Uh, it's interesting that uh, this was a second book in a trilogy. Uh, 
we haven't heard anything about a third book, and I, I plead guilty to not having looked in the last month or so at Leverett's website to see if maybe she's updated and said she's going to, she, her third book is about to come out. But based on the sales of this book, don't, the second book don't seem to have been really, really good. And, uh, I mean, I basically, I basically, I think she's trying to milk, she's trying to milk this, uh, West Memphis three project for all it's worth. It was her big claim to success. And, uh, Dark Spell just didn't do that well. And, and I don't know what the third book would be, but I, I haven't heard any word about it. Now, the estimated delivery date of the book from Baldwin, his memoirs, was December 2014. That's almost six years ago. He, he, you know, he pitched this project back in 2013, so that was seven years ago. He was given almost $30,000 that he's using to pay his bills. And guess what? Jason Baldwin hasn't followed through with what he said he's going to do. But do you think he's given the $30,000 back to his backers? Of course not. Yeah, which raises real questions about what he is doing now. Now, what he is doing now is he has a job. I don't know his exact title, but he's he's with Proclaim Justice. He claims he co-founded this nonprofit organization. It's based in Austin, Texas. And it's, quote, a 5013C dedicated to winning freedom for inmates who are factually innocent of the crimes for which they were convicted. Okay, that's a pretty high bar because you're not talking about just getting people out of prison on, ba on the basis of, well, some legality, but they're factually innocent, which the West Memphis Three aren't. They're not, they're not factually innocent. They're not legally innocent. Uh it's it's not really clear what was going on back in 2016 because at that time he posted and said he no longer had a direct role in Proclaim Justice, but in fact he has a role in Proclaim Justice now. And the organization grew directly out of the West Memphis Three defense team and included the Dixie uh, Board of Directors at various points, included the Dixie Chicks Singer Natalie Maines, Paradise Lost director Joe Berlinger, defense attorney Stephen Braga, uh, Mara Leverett, Holly Ballard, longtime West Memphis Three Flack, Lonnie Sowery, uh, Sheila Nevins, who's a HBO, uh, HBO, she was for many, many years in charge of all these film projects at HBO. She was the one who green-lighted these projects. Uh, and of course, there's other people. <coughs> uh, Jason, Flom, Jason Flom, the uh, record producer and uh, 
noted advocate for uh, the Innocence Movement uh, is is on that board now. Um, and sometime a couple of years ago, Baldwin went, did go to I don't know. Apparently, he's working a diner or something at one point. But anyway, at some point, he a couple of years ago, he went down to Austin, Texas, and started working. Uh, with Proclaim Justice. Uh, there's a, another, uh, John Harden is, is, is his partner in this. They apparently have an office, uh, that, you know, an actual office someplace. Uh, according to the financial filings that they've made over the last few years, they're really not spending a whole lot of money on. They're spending quite a bit of money on their off their salaries, which aren't great. But you know, Jason's getting thirty thousand thirty thousand dollars a year comes up again thirty thousand dollars a year, which isn't it's not a great salary. But uh, when you're only having a budget of say a hundred hundred and ten hundred twenty thousand dollars a year. Uh, and you've got office expenses and you got they have quite a few travel expenses entertainment expenses uh, promotional expenses the amount of money they're actually spending on legal work and actual try actually working toward getting these their case so-called cases out of uh, these cases out of prison is really small, maybe 10, 12. You know, they spent more one year than they did another, but it was, you know, it might be more some years than others, but it, obviously it would be. But, uh, you know, I think it was something like close, around $10,000 one year. That's not very much money when you're, most of the money is going for upkeep for the organization. Um, and most of what we have seen Baldwin post in recent years has been about his promotional activities. Hey, I'm holding a fundraiser. Hey, we're having a concert. Natalie Maines is going to be singing. Uh, hey, uh, I'm standing. I'm standing outside the prison with some guy that just got out of prison. He's our good friend. <laughs> you know. Tim, there was a guy named Tim Howard that was in prison in Arkansas. As far as I know, the, proclaim justice did nothing more than just proclaim the fact that Tim Howard should be out of prison, and the guy was paroled out of prison on a murder charge after you know being in there for many many years. They apparently had nothing to do with the case, but except. Sort this sort of hey moral support for Tim Howard, and it was one of Marl Everett's pet cases. And they act like oh yeah we had a lot to do with this. Uh, there was a, a guy in Texas named uh, Dan. There is a guy in Texas named Daniel Vieja, and he uh, was in prison for many years and uh, had been charged as a teenager with a shotgun slaying. 
and had gone through, say, three trials. And finally, in his third trial, you know, it's funny how this works. If you go back to trial often enough and it goes on for long enough, you know, maybe at some point uh, the lawyers figure out the strategy, your witnesses disappear, they raise up an, enough legal and procedural questions that, you know, you finally get off. So he was finally exonerated, but not the first time or the second time, three times. And I don't see any evidence that Jason, that uh, proclaimed justice, poured any sort of resources into uh, Daniel Vallejo, except when he got out of prison, they supposedly helped him out a little bit. I don't know, you know, bought him a toothbrush or something. I don't know, but uh, you know, picked him up at the, picked him up at the prison. Whatever. I mean, the guy actually had a, a backing from his. I think it's I think it's his stepfather or his stepfather-in-law or something like that. But there was he was working. There was a he was from El Paso and there was a, the 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 backer had a a uh, construction company and he had resources. So that's why Daniel Vieira was be able able to get through all this and he had work waiting for him when he got out. I don't know why what proclaimed justice had to do with any of that, but there'll be you know you'll see a picture of Jason Baldwin smiling and you know and hugging, uh, you know, the released prisoner. Now, for the longest time, they, they actually didn't list any real cases to speak of. And then uh, they've got two now, really more than two in a sense, but the, one of them is, one, there's, one case is, is West Memphis, it's a West Memphis case. It's involved three suspects. It it's about a sh- shooting, a murder that occurred in the very same area where where uh, the Moors and the Bi- uh, Moors and Byers lived, right in that area. That those apartments uh, are not the uh, the apartments that were across from Robin Hood Hills. Those apartments. Uh, there was a shooting that occurred very near there. So, and those have apparently gone through various appeals and they're really not, don't seem to be going anywhere. And then there is the case of uh, Andres Mascoro. And this is the other one. Now, I listened to a podcast called uh, Dead Man Talking about this briefly, and Andres Mascoro was convicted of murdering his girlfriend's husband, and and that she apparently was trying to collect life insurance. Diamantina Calejo is the girl. And she confessed, and he confessed. So you got two people confessing. Then uh, this so-called railway killer, railroad killer, came along and said, "Oh well, you know, I can. I'm, they're going to execute me anyway." But you know what? Guess what? I did these murders, these various murders. So, and this is one of the ones I committed. So this guy's in prison unfairly. Well, you know, these 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 sentences have been, you know, he's in prison for life. 
Mascoro. And these, these cases have been appealed and they've been shot down. Uh, Mascoro was an illegal alien. And, and, you know, I just don't have a whole lot of sympathy for this guy. I mean, he's, he doesn't speak English now. And I'm sure he's got an, had an opportunity to learn some English while he's in prison. Uh, but, you know, he was, he was an illegal. He shows, he shows up in, in Texas. He gets involved with this married woman. The husband shows up dead. He confesses. And he claims that, you know, he had three brothers who were also all illegals. And he claims that, you know, they were all going to be deported, so he confessed to murder. Well, I just don't have any sympathy for that. I don't care. I mean, number one, y'all are, all of them are here illegally anyway. So if they all get deported, too bad. And if you, you know, if that's the kind of, uh, there's no proof that that threat was even made, for one thing. But even if it was, I may, I, apart from the legality of it, and I, I don't attempt to rule on that, but apart from the legality of it, uh, you know, is using him to coerce, uh, using that to coerce a uh, confession out of him. Um, I don't care. You put you put yourself in that position by showing up in a, a country where you don't speak the language. You've got all these relatives who are here illegally, and you're illegal yourself, and you get involved with a married woman who has designs on her husband's money. Now, the podcaster does an interview with attempts to do an interview with Mascoro, uh, has to use a translator, and Mascoro really hasn't done anything on his own case because he doesn't know English, so he has no resources. Again, you know, <laughs> he's been in prison for over 20 years. He could have learned enough English by now to perhaps... Uh, work on his own appeals, you know, uh, th this podcaster had been con contacting him for several, for several years, apparently, and at least for some time, and never got a response because uh, the letters were in English, and he doesn't know how to read English. And, you know, I, I, I guess <laughs> the, the, his, his girlfriend's case on appeal, you know, she she claimed she was coerced. It was coerced. But, you know, there weren't... Uh, even the coercion she describes wasn't really that big a deal. It's, you know, she's not claiming she was beaten or, you know, th threatened or anything like that. It was more, you know, uh, they, that the, they were, they were rude to her and unpleasant. And they showed her pictures she didn't like seeing of the dead body and so forth. And I think they actually did show a picture of the body. It's not against the law to do that, by the way. So um, I don't have any sympathy for him. And I don't see where that case is going. I don't see anything publicly. Uh, and you know, if somebody knows of something that Proclaimed Justice is doing on behalf of Andres Mascaro, my next podcast, I'll be happy to. You alert, alert me to that. I'll be happy to say, oh yeah, Proclaim Justice is doing that. I don't see that Proclaim Justice is doing anything that can be discerned from uh, a, like a 
internet search or something like that. I don't see anything going on in any of these cases. So basically, it looks like they're collecting money, sitting in their offices. You know, they take trips. They seem to t have some fun. Ball uh, and John Harden post pictures of themselves drinking beer in various venues. All that's entertainment, and of course, it was written off as uh, expenses expenses for the uh, uh, for their nonprofit, and that's where Jason Baldwin is today. Let me get back to what I, where I was going with the rest of this, and I, I know I got kind of off track. I'm getting off. At the, this is beyond what the book has. So I'm getting off into some stuff here. Um, we, we, there was Jesse Miscelli Jr. also got out of prison at the same time. And Jesse went straight back to Highland Park. And he seemed to have have reached some sort of, you know, happy ending there for a little bit. He reunited with his former girlfriend, Susie Brewer, and she's the little girl. It's kind of embarrassing to, to, to watch for, for me personally. Uh, and the fact that this girl is very much underage just makes it that much worse. Jesse is 18. She's 12, 13, four, maybe 14 years old. She's a young teenager. And he's throwing all this sex talk her way. Not explicit, but explicit enough. That's what he's talking about. And she's embarrassed about it and rolling her eyes. That's in the Paradise Lost movies. But, you know, anyway, they get back together. Uh, she's married or been married. She has kids. Things did not end well. I, I contacted her. I tried to, you know, I contacted a lot of people for this book, and I got very few responses uh, on the guilty side, uh, or the innocent side, should I say. Friends and supporters of uh, Damien, Jason, and Jesse. And Susie explained to me in a Facebook message, December 30th, 2016. So this is almost four years old now. Uh, I was stupid for reuniting with him. He likes to fight. One girl saved me from him. He attacked me in front of my sons, so I left. He turned to meth and coke. Now when I see him, I turn away. He's staying in a roach-infested trailer with his dad, takes his money for his habit, when I was trying to work with him, I told him you could be free from Highland, go do things with others, but no, in his mind, he was still 19 because he couldn't understand. About my testimony, I was a kid and thought everyone cursed me. No one would believe my testimony then. He let himself go, which is sad. He could have had a better life. After he grabbed my throat, pushed me into a wall, put a big hole, then he grabbed a weight from the bench Tina, whoever that is, grabbed it, pushed him out, all because I walked in. Apparently he was smoking one of those meth pipes. I told him, ain't no way my sons and I have to be around that shit. I told him my sons are my world. Wasn't even going to jeopardize them into that kind of shit. So I told him, so I made him leave until I was done moving. 
Like I told him, I am an adult now, have kids, I keep safe, no amount of money of anything, so I went back to my dad's. When he was released, he still had the mind frame of being 18. I tried to tell him, I am not the same kid, I am a mother, always be first. After Miss Skelly returned to Crittenden County, he briefly showed up for media events and was otherwise accessible, but soon adopted a lower profile. Then he all but dropped from sight for quite some time. He lived quietly for a while in Earl, Arkansas, and lived apparently just around the corner from the father of Steve, Stevie Branch, Steve Branch Sr., uh, which is which is risky risky behavior in my opinion uh then he returned again to highland trailer park and he apparently subsists on a meager income from supporters family members and case related income as well as occasional work i know his father would that's what i written at the time his father was in uh, uh had uh burned it apparently it had some sort of pro he burned himself somehow and um was having some health problems and so he moved back in with him and was helping him out um uh, jesse a couple of years ago i believe it was two years ago might have been three i, I should have looked this up he uh he was uh, picked up three times for driving without a license over a space of about four months. Yeah, some other traffic violations. Spent a little time in jail because of that, and then that was all resolved. And he hasn't been in trouble since. I will say that driving without a license is considered to be you know, it's not a, it's not a major crime, but it's it's a very, it's considered to be a very serious driving offense, and people do serve time in jail for driving without a license, uh, particularly people who are picked up three times in, in a, uh, three times in the space of just a couple of months for the same offense. So I think the judicial system there cut Jesse some slack because basically they didn't want to, didn't want to get involved in this thing. You know, far from, far from picking on him, I think he probably got some special treatment that he would not have gotten otherwise. I could be wrong. Maybe they just, they talk big about uh, prosecuting these uh, types of cases, but uh, maybe they just don't care that much. I do know I used to go to municipal court in uh, West Memphis on, on a very regular basis. And uh, the people who came in there, and uh, this is Judge Powell Rainey, who had a minor role in the West Memphis Three case. Uh, Judge Rainey really let the guys he showed up with driving without a license have it. He dressed them down and basically humiliated them on a regular basis. Uh, he felt very strongly about that. Uh, Fred Thorne, last I heard, was a municipal judge there now. Maybe I, Fred, I don't think, is any more lenient than 
Pal Rainey, in fact, maybe even less lenient, but, you know, I don't, I, I didn't go cover any of his municipal court sessions except one or two when he was filling in for Pal Rainey. So I really don't know how hard nose he is as far as dealing with that particular offense. Anyway, other than that, Jesse has not been in any kind of obvious legal trouble. He had, had something going on with the dog at some point. But that's, you know, that's not going to get you thrown back in prison. It doesn't, you know, if your dog is bothering a neighbor, they're not going to throw you back in prison for that. I'm not suggesting they should. Uh, he's, he's still keeping a low profile. I know Bob Ruff tried to chase him. It's pretty funny on the uh, Bob Ruff's oxygen special. He's trying to chase Miss Kelly down. It's not that hard to do particularly when you're like a big investigative podcaster, it really wouldn't be that hard to find Jesse Miskelly Jr. Uh, there's not that many places he shows up. And uh, Ruff had a very hard time tracking him down. But he finally did it, and then he reaches some sort of goofy agreement through a bedroom door uh, that uh, he gets... Miss uh, Kelly's permission to, you know, go go seek uh, uh, retesting on the DNA. Now, let me let me just say this: I don't know. I doubt very seriously if Jesse Miskelly Jr. actually understands what DNA testing is, what it might involve, and what the ramifications of that could be. Uh, did Bob Ruff explain any of that to this? man that supposedly has a the brain of a six-year-old child no he didn't do that at all and the the, and the the man with the supposedly six-year-old brain is in there with his girlfriend doing who knows what but anyway he's entitled to do that but um rough would lambaste attack attempt to destroy anybody else who was dealing with Jesse with his supposedly terribly low IQ if they treated him like that. Jesse's IQ, I, I, people argue about it. He, t- he tests higher on performance. He's almost, there's different aspects of IQ. In some aspects of IQ, he is almost, he's, he would be like low, low normal performance. He's something like 88, which is, you know, it doesn't make you smart, but it doesn't make you stupid either. You're edging on up to like average there. You're still below average. Um, where he got into pro- problems, I, and I think he was malingering. I don't think he take. I don't think he takes tests well, and I don't know any reason why he should. But they did do some psychological testing on him that showed he was had would have a tendency to malinger. And I just, I think he just didn't really try real hard on that IQ test, and he comes up with a 72. Particularly, he knows, oh, if you're really not that smart, maybe you'll get out of going to prison. So, he should have played it, you know, should have answered a couple more questions wrong, and who knows what would have happened. But he's not that smart. Um, and 72 is, it's, it's sort of a borderline thing. You get you're getting close down to where you're actually uh, the standard and 
the standard for retardation varies in different places and uh, mental, the mental hen- handicap category in Arkansas is, is IQ below 65. Let me t- say this again. There are entire nations in this world where their IQ is below 70. If you don't believe me, take a look for yourself. So there are whole nations that are walking around with people who allegedly aren't any more uh, capable of taking care of themselves than the average six-year-old. Jesse Miskelly Jr. was much more street smart than any six-year-old. You can... um, you can see him in the Paradise Lost movies. He jokes around. He responds to questions. Uh, he doesn't have a particularly intelligent look in his eye when he responds. And I'm not saying his responses are particularly intelligent, but you can tell he, he understands like con- as far as concrete matters. He understands those pretty well. If you start to get into abstractions and uh, philosophical concepts or uh, really any kind of history or any kind of area that would really require any a knowledge out of his immediate world, he would probably be lost. And some of that's just poor, being poorly educated, being unmotivated, uh, and not. And but a lot of it is the fact he's not that smart, but he's smart enough to know what's going on. He was smart enough to know what was going on on May 5th, 1993, when he, Damien, and Jesse killed those three little boys. I've got two or three more episodes left, and then I'm going to be through with most of what I'm going to do on the West Memphis Three. I've gone through my books. And I'm going to be moving on to do something else. I was back and forth for all this week about whether I've already got something sort of prepared that's not with the West Memphis Three. And I thought, well, there's a timeliness issue here, but I'm still going to go ahead and finish up the West Memphis Three. And then I'll do that. And I'll be a little better prepared when, uh, and do maybe do a little better job on that particular podcast when it comes up. I'm going to apologize today for me fumbling around on stuff, but I'm ta- having, I didn't write uh, the events that happened after, say, in 2017, 18, 19, 20. I'm having to pull that stuff out of the top of my head. I didn't write, uh, I didn't write it in the book. And, uh, you know, uh, there's not that much of it. Not Nothing that big and exciting is gone, but, uh, I have to, you know, have to organize my thoughts, and sometimes <laughs> I organize my thoughts better on on paper than I do just just jabbering away. Anyway, uh, that's enough for me. I'll talk to you again soon. Stay well. This is Gary Me signing out.